covering Richard Sherman is the most interesting. He's the most interesting subject I've ever had as a reporter, as a radio host, just in general, to observe and describe his behavior. And he is the subject for today's dang apostrophe. I know when you ask me about these injuries and, and, and I give you my thoughts, if you really want to figure it out, I think Danny O'Neill has the best uh, translations for me. Always appreciate that from Pete Carroll. It is the dang apostrophe. I'm Danny O'Neill. Uh, this is a Substack newsletter that I send out a couple times a week to subscribers. also send it out to you. If you subscribe for free, though, you don't get access to everything that I write. There's also a podcast that is pushing to become a little bit more regular. Why is it called the dang apostrophe? Well, like that certain punctuation mark in my last name, I continue to hanging around, hanging around. Kids got alligator blood. Can't get rid of him. I'm not going anywhere. Nope, not going anywhere. At least not in the immediate future. The Seattle Seahawks host the San Francisco 49ers. It's a must-win game for the Seahawks on Thursday night if they are going to have a chance to win the division title. I don't think there's any doubt about that. It's getting close to they're going to need to win if they're going to make the playoffs because while it's possible 8-9 and nine would get you into the playoffs, I think that's looking less likely. Seattle's schedule down the stretch does include some difficult matchups. They've got the Kansas City Chiefs and the New York Jets before wrapping it up against the Los Angeles Rams, yet I'm going to spend the bulk of today's podcast talking about someone who is not going to play in the game. That is Richard Sherman. He's played for the Seahawks. He's played for the 49ers. He is part of the Amazon Prime broadcast that will be coming from Lumen Field tonight, and he has injected himself right back into the discourse of Seattle sports. All right, so I'm going to go through Richard Sherman's Wednesday media experience as I experienced it. So it's not necessarily chronological for him. It's chronological for me. And that starts with his appearance on 710 Seattle Sports, which is the station that I used to work at. Richard Sherman was the guest of Brock and Salk as part of KJ Wright's hour that he's done each week with them over the course of the regular season. KJ Richard, of course, they enter the NFL the same season. KJ is a fourth-round pick out of Mississippi State. Sherman, a fifth-round pick out of Stanford. They become two pretty essential cogs in the defense that is the defining trade of the most successful run that the Seattle Seahawks have ever had. Um, Not to diminish Russell Wilson's accomplishments in that time, but that defense, I mean, the fewest points in the league for four successive seasons is really, really remarkable. They are both KJ and Richard are in their first year uh, of retirement. I guess you'd say neither one has played so far this season. Both lasted 11 years, which is really, really remarkable. And Richard Sherman comes on and everything went fairly normal for the first, for the first two or three minutes. And then it rotated around for Mike Salk to ask a question. And that's where Richard Sherman, as he has done in the past, dug in his heels a little bit. You know the voice, Richard Sherman, uh, with us here on Seattle Sports on 710. When you went elsewhere, first to San Francisco and then Tampa, what did it teach you or what did you learn about the differences between those places and what you had seen here in Seattle? 
Well, well, first off, first off, I remember when I exited here, and and I remember some some words from you, yeah, um, that were that were a lot different than than I had heard when I was here. So you know what I mean? It's it's a little different. I'm asked answer the questions from Brock and KJ, but we're going to excuse you out of this. <laughs> Well, so I, first of all, that's just not true. I mean, like the words you heard from me were actually pretty similar to what you had heard while you were here. You just maybe didn't hear them. Yeah, because I don't listen to your show. But no, again, I don't, that's you, fine. I'm not asking you to listen, but the words didn't change. I didn't say anything different when you left from when you were here. You're excused from the interview. All right. Well, sorry. For, for, okay. We'll play a little bit more because it doesn't quite end there. Radio interviews specifically, but media availability in general depends and functions because of a level of cooperation between the interview and the host. Any subject of any interview could at any point do exactly what Richard Sherman did to Mike Salk, which is to become non-cooperative, confrontational. And I want to... Sherman's got that right. Like, I don't think there's, there's, there's no power of subpoena here. This is, it's a, it's a mutually agreed to interview. And I've always thought that sort of the, the league mandated media availability is it's a PR tactic from the league. It's it has nothing to do with freedom of the press or anything like that. We're talking about adults here. If Richard Sherman doesn't want to answer questions from Mike Salk or from any other reporter for that matter. In my mind, he's got the right to do it. It's it's a little strange in this circumstance because he's come on a show where Mike is the host. And he has to have known that Mike was the host. So there's a little bit of was Sherman planning to have this sort of fight? Like is this is this something? But all in all, he's certainly within his rights to say, I don't want to answer questions from this person. I actually think Mike handles this pretty professionally, which he basically says, okay, I, I don't agree with your characterization of why you're upset with me. He's willing to engage. And then Sherman again, like for the second time, basically says, I'm not going to engage with you. There's a, an attempt, a very quick attempt to okay and pivot out of it, but it gets pretty awkward again right away. For, that for, really worked that way, Sherm. This for, is you know a show that has my name on it. It kind of does. It kind of does, though. No, not but, really how this works, man. Sherm, for your for your dog, for your dog, for your dog. When let, let, yeah, that's, well, that's the only reason I'm here because of KJ. Well, like, I, I appreciate I, that, but the man I, thinks he can it, like. If you've the got an issue, you can feel here, free to I'm talk about it. KJ, not because of you. So. Well, I understand that. If you've got an issue, I'm happy to talk through those with you, man. If you've got a problem yeah, and something you want to talk about. So he says, I don't have any conversation for you. They pivot off. KJ asks him a couple questions about the game. And then Brock jumps in, Brock Heward, and, and says, hey, Sherm, you've got a brotherhood with KJ. We've all seen and appreciated and witnessed that. I've got a brotherhood here with Mike Salk. I think you can ask KJ. He'll tell you Mike's pretty good at what he does. Sherm says, I can respect that. I can't respect what he says. And if I don't respect you, I don't have any time for you. The the interview then ends. And all in all, 
it's awkward. Like it's clearly awkward. And Sherm has created that, that awkwardness because he's been non-cooperative. Like Mike was willing to engage in any dialogue about what he said in the past. And in fact, had tried to bring it up. Hey, if there's something, what did I say that bothered you? We can talk about it. And Sherm's like, I'm not going to talk about it. I don't have the conversation. Again, both guys are like, this isn't the, the issue is that generally in interview, there's an agreement that, okay, we're going to engage And here. It's a little awkward because Sherm's interview agreed to the interview with KJ, but he doesn't want it anyway. This tends to happen with Richard, and I've come to see that and understand that or accept that. I've, I've been on both ends of this, man. Like my, my The interview that I've enjoyed the most in my time doing radio was an interview I did of Sherman. There was a Thursday night show called Seahawks Live, and at the time, it was hosted out at the Pearl Bar in Bellevue. It was a two-hour show. There would be guests, Dave Wyman, Paul Moyer, Michael Bumpus, uh, among those guys would usually be there for the show. And then there would be a live in-person interview of a player. And I interviewed Sherman. I'm not sure if it was just me. I can't remember the exact specifics of who was there. But I remember how much I enjoyed the interview. And I've always really enjoyed Sherm. In large part because he's honest and transparent. And look, in most situations, and I would say, here's the, the, the top reason that I stopped reporting and being a full-time reporter for the Seattle Times and went to radio was because I felt I was in a job where I was asking questions that I knew the, the answers that I was going to get. Not only that, but I felt that the people I was asking the questions knew knew the questions I was going to ask. Like it was, it had become, I'd done it for a long time. I'd covered the Seahawks from 2005 through 2012. And, and I'd gone through a couple of coaching changes. Like I'd seen most of the different, the, the different cycles and it had gotten a little stagnant for me. And I, I really, I enjoyed a new format. I liked being on the radio, but Richard Sherman, and this is probably at the root of the affection that I have for him and why I like him and like covering him, even though he's prone to not not just get mad at people that cover him, he's been mad at me, he might still be mad at me, is that Richard doesn't conform his behavior to sort of the, the programmed expectations. And I don't think at its core that that's a bad thing. Mike Leach passed away this month. Mike Leach was someone who, even more than Richard, refused to modify his behavior based on the expectations of the media that was covering him. Probably not. Mike Leach's politics pretty extremely different from mine. I even wrote a column about this. I accepted and appreciated Mike Mike Leach's willingness. I think he introduced Donald Trump at a at a, at a rally before it was before the 2016 election and people were mad about it, which which I understand and it's what I what I respected about it was that 
Mike Leach wasn't going to do something because it would upset people. Like, he wasn't going to say, like, no, I can't do that because people will get mad. He did what he believed. And, 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 and there's, there's a real value in that. And it doesn't mean that everybody you, you have to accept and everything everyone does as long as they really believe it. But it does mean that I have a much easier time and enjoy being around people who are authentic and honest about who they are. Even if some of the things that they are honest and authentic about, I, I don't agree with or I find off-putting or I say I wouldn't have done that. And that's what I would say like Mike Leach... I thought he was too callous in the way he talked about his players. I thought I definitely wondered about like what the experience was like playing for him. We mentioned the actual politics that like I don't agree with his politics at all. But I also felt like you kind of knew who you were getting with Mike. Like that's you understood like there wasn't he was not disingenuous. Like you knew what you were getting. And that's that's like the number one thing that you can ask for is like if I'm going to be in a conversation with you or I'm going to be like am I, I – I should be able to know kind of what, what I'm getting. And I thought Mike was really honest and very consistent. Like he was, a, he was boorish to other media members and guys really disliked it. John Blanchett of the Spokane uh, – the, the Spokesman Review, longtime columnist there. Like, Leach was really confrontational to him one time. I was part of an interview where he got mad at Jim Moore, who's as big a Coug fan as you're ever going to find, and told Jim that he had an agenda-driven approach and wondered about the owl that lived in his backyard potentially flying off with Jim's new puppy. Like, it was weird. It was awkward. I I didn't think that was... <laughs> I didn't think that was cool. Like, I, I don't think that's great. But I also felt like, man, Mike is... That that's who he is. He's not he's not gonna change it. And there's there's some of that that I feel with with Sherm, which is if he doesn't like someone, he's very willing to make that very public. And the result is extremely awkward in interactions. Whether it was that interview when he went on first take, I think it was two thousand twelve, after the two thousand twelve season, with Skip Bayless and told Skip like I'm better at life than you are. I'm better at life in my 24 years than you are. It was awkward. I think John Schneider's, that wasn't real impressive, was his overall synopsis of it. And there's some truth to that, but I was also like, Sherm's being honest. He got mad at Jim Moore. He threatened to pull his credit. Oh, he said, I'll ruin your career, which is, A, it's not realistic. The, the other part is like, it is a threat. You shouldn't do that. Like that's not, but it was also like Sherm's just more transparent with his emotions. And even though I've been on the receiving end of that or seen instances where I'm like, okay, yeah, that was unnecessary. There's something that I also respect about that. And then this brings me to the second part because after witnessing that interview, I came across, it's a interview with Kevin Clark of The Ringer. Uh, he does a thing called S Slow News Day. The full thing is available on Spotify, so I didn't want to link the audio there because it's a subscription only. Like, I'm not here to try and bypass paywalls for people's content. But Kevin, Kevin's great. 
I, I, I love Kevin's coverage. Um, I think he's really funny. I also think that his background, he used to write for the Wall Street Journal. Like I've, I've known Kevin for a long time and really like him. But he's doing an interview with Sherm, and you see, I, I don't want to call it the other side of Sherm, because that makes it seem like there's a Jekyll and Hyde. This is, this is an instance of how Sherm's honesty and transparency works to sort of shed light on something in a way that's really unique. Like what, what Sherm does here, he's talking about Kyle Shanahan's expertise and what Kyle Shanahan's able to do. And, and then they segue from that to Kevin asks him, what's one thing about modern NFL defense that you wish people knew? And Sherm's like, that sometimes guys do their job and, and the coverage gets beat. That it's not the players who are screwing up, it's the coverage. And then he gives a specific example involving Shanahan. Like we, we had uh, Shanahan broke our rules one time in a game. And so anytime you had one receiver displaced, so a, disp- a displaced receiver means he's he's not connected to the line of scrimmage. So he's out wide, you know, or in the slot. And a tight end can be that way too. He can be standing up off the line. But when you have, when they're in three-point stands connected to the line of scrimmage, they're connected. So that's not displaced. And so he had Dan Quinn there. So so Dan Quinn, you know, ran our, ran our scheme and ran our scheme. And so I, I'm sure they w- ran it throughout training camp and he figured out the holes in the scheme. And so he brought up. He brought- I want to show because I went and found the actual clip that he's talking about. Now, what's funny is that I initially thought it was a different touchdown. And I'll show you that one in a second. But here is the actual play he's talking about. Now, Sherm's talked about the receiver being displaced. Displaced receiver is here at the bottom. It's Julio Jones. That Sherm lined up opposite him. You have two tight ends, one, two, that are attached to the line of scrimmage there's a third tight end he's over here attached this is the running back who is out wide now before we play it i'm going to go back to sherm so he can kind of explain what happened brought in um two tight ends to the single receiver side so there's receiver each side and two right two tight ends to the left and they're both connected to the line of scrimmage he just ran a simple like one step slant by the receiver and when you have a one receiver it's man-to-man. It's pretty much man-to-man. Hey, I got that guy locked up, but it's cover three. But if that guy stays in there and, and he runs a slant, I got the slant. So what Sherm is saying there is that their defense that they run, it's a cover three scheme. That means that you've got three different guys, the corner here, a middle safety, a corner here. They're responsible for the thirds. You can't necessarily see it, and the safety is back here because it's Earl, and he played so freaking deep. But there's a rule when you've got a single receiver, which is in this situation, the single receiver to the left is Julio Jones. Richards got him man to man. That's a rule that's in their defense. It creates a weakness in the coverage because, well, if the receiver runs downfield, Sherman's just going to follow him and then he's got that, that third. But what happens if the receiver shoots across the inside? Sherm's in man-to-man coverage. He's voiding this entire area right here because he's in man-to-man coverage, but he's also responsible for the middle third. And Shanahan's play call has just cleared him out of there. Let's watch what happens. As a receiver, Matt Ryan, wide open. 
Levine Toilolo. Can he make it in the end zone? Touchdown, Falcons. Matt Ryan. Wide open. Levine Toilolo. Can he make it in the end zone? Touchdown, Falcons. You can see Sherm recognize what's happening as he's running across and he sees that tight end running by him and he's like he knows he's running into the void that's just been created we'll go back to this is Sherm's interview with Kevin Clark and so he ran him on a one-step slant he ran the tight ends on seams touchdown uncontested like and it was just it broke the defense (laughs) it literally was against every rule that we had so we had to change the rules of the defense in order to, to combat that situation, but nobody had ever done it. So sometimes you run into situations where you're like, man, these guys suck. Like, these guys made a mistake. It's like, uh, I mean, they beat the scheme. Like, the scheme can be beat. Wow, you had to come up with the Shanahan rules, like the Jordan rules. Right, right. We definitely had to. I mean, because once somebody does it, everybody does it because it's copycat right. league. It's really, really interesting. I'm going to show you the play that I initially thought that he was referring to because – I immediately, when he, when he said it, like I knew which game it was. I knew Shanahan was the offensive coordinator for the Atlanta Falcons and that the Falcons had done something. It was a week six game. I think the Seahawks are three and one. The Falcons are four and one. It might have been flip-flopped. It might have been the Seahawks four and one. In the, but it was, it was the game of the week. It's, it, it, it's in Fox. And it's, it's the game where Sherm, Sherm got upset on the sidelines. And it was they, they were ahead. I think the score is 17-3 at halftime. And Atlanta scored 21 points in the third quarter. It just just comes roaring, absolutely roaring back. And the first of those touchdowns is the one that I thought Sherm was referencing. Here's the formation. You see Sherm is circled at the bottom. This is a replay that they were showing. Sherm is circled at the bottom. And he's going to be responsible for the middle third. The formation is different. When Sherm was talking before, he was talking about two tight ends attached. There's only one tight end attached here. Well, one tight end on the left side, one tight end on the right side. There are three tight ends in the formation because this guy down there is 81. It's Austin Hooper. So he is a tight end. Julio Jones is the guy in the slot. And then you have the running back that's here. Now, it's the same personnel package. It's 13 which is refers to the first number is the number of running backs, one. The second number is the number of tight ends, three. And that's the naming system. Like if you've got a one, two, it's one running back, two tight ends. If you've got a two, 21 personnel, it's two running backs, one tight end. And that allows you with subtraction to get the number of receivers. That's just the shorthand that teams use. Same personnel package. And when you watch the play, it's the same concept. Atlanta has, except this time, it's the receiver who's in the slot and not a tight end who's actually attached that runs it. But watch what happens here. German circled at the bottom of your screen was so upset. Look at these three guys. You got the three deep thirds defenders. And if you run this play, you'll see that Richard Sherman is the only one not playing thirds coverage and Julio Jones wide open. It's a staple of what they do. There was a clear communication Mis- miscommunication there on the back end and it leads to a touchdown for Atlanta. Chris- Sherm's whole point is that it wasn't a miscommunication, right? Like Sherm's whole point is like, no. Shanahan realized there's this thing he did when he put, when there were three eligible receivers 
on the left side of the formation, our cover three had a rule where the corner sticks with the guy that's on the outside no matter what happens. And he manipulated that situation to create a void that he ran a player into twice for touchdowns in, in, in the third quarter. I don't think it's a coincidence that he waited until the third quarter to do it. It's, and that's the level of expertise. I, I would always... There's another 30 minutes of this episode, as well as other podcasts, which I'm planning to upload weekly. I hope you'll consider subscribing to the dang apostrophe at Substack.